Hello, everyone. This is Chris. Today, my sister is here. And we talk about... (laughs) We talk about everything. We're armchair experts at therapy. And so we start off by going a little deep into just analyzing... Uh, where does all your anger go? How do you know when your feelings aren't totally irrational? What's it like growing up with a Midwest nice family? And as with all of us, you wouldn't know just by looking, but um, she's got some real wisdom and she's a breast cancer survivor, an adoptive parent, an attachment disorder specialist, a business owner. She's a lifelong seeker and we talk about all of it. Enjoy. Hello. Hello. (laughs) I'm here with my sister, Lori. She is my only sister, my only sibling. She is three mm-hmm. and a half yep. years older than I am. Yep. And master of many things. Uh, what do you want to say about yourself? <laughs> Jack of many trades, master of none. Is that the... <laughs> the yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Lori. I am married. And I... So I am a wife and I am a mother. And... I am a woman who's still trying to find joy and passion. Um, but no, I've, uh, I have four kids ranging in age from 21 as the oldest, 21, 19, 17, and 11. And uh, two adopted, two biologically mine, which plays into the story of my life a bit. Um, I teach uh, adoption and parenting classes part-time, so I own my own business doing that. Um, but I'm also constantly seeking what is my next thing or even what not next thing but what brings me joy and what brings me passion because whenever I've created a five-year plan it turns out radically different from what I expect so uh so yeah that's me I had a question for you Uh we were talking about being heard and how important it is to have someone respond to you with considerate action in response to your emotions. Yeah. And to make the assumption, this is making the assumption that your emotions are valid and coming from a place of general well-being and health. When, for women in particular, are emotions irrational and unreasonable? And can we tell? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I actually find, I find that for me, that question is, um, let me give a bit of background about how I think when I grew up, I was very much encouraged to not rely on emotions. Um, In our house. In our house. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say to not have emotions, but it was... I, well, our dad was more logical, sort of, and I remember, and mom was more emotional. I remember she would always be like, so what are you feeling about that? And it would drive me nuts. Oh, really? When I was in middle school, high school, I would just stop asking me how I feel. Um, Hmm. But 
I think I was taught to think things through and well, what, what would, what's the logical argument behind that? And emotions didn't play into that. Okay. And so as in, so I think my first 25 years of my life, I probably, uh, didn't pay attention to emotions and the way I was feeling because it was the less, uh, scholarly way to make a decision or the less, uh, correct way to do things I remember this distinctly because (laughs) I was the opposite yeah you totally were (laughs) and which was why dad understood me and he just was baffled by you that's part of the he would be baffled by me now too um but he actually that's I have a comment to swing back to um uh so in my mid-20s though I think I started getting in touch with my emotions and the idea that the world didn't have to be logical. It could, it was just as important to honor who you were without being a brain on a stick. I've had oh, a brain on a stick. therapists tell me I was like a lollipop, like all had no connection to my body, like a brain connected to a lollipop stick. Your therapists say that? I, ha- I don't know well, about those therapists. <laughs> and energy workers would say that. Tammy said that as an energy worker oh. too. So very, very cerebral, very logical, very much disconnected to signals my body was giving me about emotions. Uh So my default tends to be when I have a strong emotion and I want to express that, I usually default to expressing it first in logical terms because, of course, that's the way somebody else would understand it. Uh, It's like my argument will be more powerful if I have logic than if it's just emotion. But secondarily, I question whether I should have that emotion or not. Is it okay for me to have that emotion? Or should I not be feeling that way? Or should I, even if I feel that way, do X, Y, and Z to not, to not count in that emotion? So that's not healthy. That's an unhealthy way to be, absolutely. And so your initial question of when is a person, particularly women, uh, how can you tell whether that's okay to have or not okay to have or real or not real because somebody can be way off base I need to first work on identifying on telling myself hey it's okay to have an emotion and have that be a reason to do something so when you hear the voice inside that's asking um is it okay that I have this emotion is this emotion warranted this is an emotion I shouldn't have, or this is an emotion I should have. You're basically measuring the events that led up. Are you, are you saying you're analyzing the situation and saying, are you saying, is this emotion warranted before you actually have the emotion or like let it pass through the gate of your it's almost, I used to, I are, think are when I was, when I was growing, when I was growing up, I believe I so quickly, I don't think I can, stop feelings from happening but I think growing up I was acclimated or taught to very quickly stop that emotion because it wasn't okay which emotions oh anger need um distress sadness how about joy joy yep that's a good one Mm -hmm. because you can't you don't want to be too excited or too happy about something Mm -hmm. because Something bad might be around the corner, and then you'll have been wrong for being so excited about it. Wasting, wasting all that enthusiasm waste, and joy. I, I, I totally think it's funny because, yeah, the idea that joy could be a limited resource mm-hmm. is, I don't even know where that came from in our family history. But Our grandparents, probably. 
Yes, but why even in, like, in what circumstance would people start believing that joy was a limited resource? The Great Depression. But wouldn't you savor any joy that you had? Wouldn't that be where being mindful or in the moment would, that would be the lifeline, I would think. My imagination, like, I've, I don't know that I got a ton of stories from them about that time. I imagine that when things are very scarce, you would hope that it means you really hold on to the precious things. I feel like maybe it was the flip for them. When things are really scarce, you're afraid to trust the precious things because you're afraid they're going to slip away. So you just level down the joy until it's mediocre at best because having the joy and having it taken away is so painful. Yeah. Maybe. And I think it's a fear that you're not going to survive the joy being taken away. Yeah. Just the fear, but the fear of having such large negative emotions in a way. But then I think it it goes back years ago. I remember a question, probably one of those like little philosophical questions that you pull out of a box and people discuss in a group. It was... That sounds really fun. It was, would you rather uh, totally be... Would you rather have a life that's filled with huge highs and huge lows, or would you rather Ah. have a life that's kind of in the middle where Mm -hmm. it's very stable, but you don't ever have a huge high? And which would you rather have? And I think my default, whether I would want it or not, would be uh, to, I think my default would be the, the stableness, though I don't uh, think it's see here I, I don't think that's a good choice necessarily I think that there's a piece of me that says no go for the joy but I I'm not sure whether I've completely learned to uh to trust that I would survive the joy being taken away so you want the highs and lows but you shouldn't want the highs and lows because I should I only want the highs I don't want the lows <laughs> and so that sounds like every human <laughs> um and it's also paradoxical then because there are my I'm pretty sure it's my brain chemistry tends towards depression uh and seasonal depression is a huge aspect of that so this time of year which is the fall is uh is challenging because my default emotion with all of the signs of fall is it's death so oh, death oh, of like the leaves falling the and... leaves falling um yes the leaves falling plants di- plants being covered in snow and hibernation hibernation mm-hmm. and while personally I think hibernation can be a very positive thing I do that for myself as a gift a lot uh somehow and there are people around me my husband for example who's like but fall is so lovely it's look at the colors and I just love the season and I'm like yeah but it means everything's dying <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so bright and cheery it's, it's so bright and cheery but I wonder and it's totally chemical related because my light box helps there are things that I can do to help change my brain chemistry but I wonder whether that that physical physiological default towards the negative or the downs of life might have been a reason why my ancestors strove for just stableness, stable boring, because mm. boy, we live in that downside so easily. And our default is look, death everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, that is, 
so our grandparents. <laughs> yeah, and and even with things like oh when God. I had uh, my first baby, Abby, after my first pregnancy, mm-hmm. I distinctly remember in not just in the first week home, though it hit me in the first week home, a little bit of postpartum depression perhaps, but I remember being up in the middle of the night feeding her, like nursing her and rocking back and forth in the living room, sobbing because I had this newborn baby and it meant everybody was going to die. It meant my mother would die. It meant I would die. Oh. And then I would leave my baby alone. It, like, but the circle of life, I can't, I have a hard time experiencing a joyful milestone, joy, uh, the engagement of my daughter, Abby. The day after she said she was engaged, I was just a wreck. And it's was it abs- like, everyone's mortal. Everyone's We're mortal. All gonna We're die. all going to die. Exactly. So that's weird that the big <laughs> events just trigger your thoughts of mortality. It does. And it's a physical reaction. It's not because huh. I don't think that's logically true at all. It's I mean, yeah, we all are going to die. But that's a normal cycle of life. Like it's if I can think objectively about it, it doesn't provoke all that angst and fear and stuff. But uh, for sure, the the big positive hmm. life events for me, my initial f- physiological reaction is uh, grief, discomfort, fear, anger. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Do you, has has any of your therapy shed light on why that connection is there? No. Because I'm sure you're not the only one. Right, I'm not. In fact, I was in a book club once where I mentioned that initial discussion after having a baby. Yeah. And the women in the group who had experienced depression all were like, oh, yeah, totally. And the women in the group who had never experienced depression were like, what? That's That's crazy. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So I I know it's not just me. Hmm. Um, How much of that do you think is from having a dad who pretty much was growing up growing us to be cautious so if you're going into a crowd make sure you look for someone with a gun right if you're going into a building make sure you look for an emergency exit if you're going carry money in all at least like five different areas of your body so when you are pickpocketed they'll only Mm -hmm. get part of your money not all of your money you can't trust any cab drivers in the city you can't yep I'll go in the ocean without thinking about sharks. You can't and like tides. Yes. And riptides. <laughs> the riptides. Oh my gosh. I mean, I don't you think that's a huge factor? Absolutely. It has to be. Absolutely. There was one time where I had my kids, we were visiting dad on the way down to downtown Chicago and we were going to do I don't State Street or something just very touristy. And uh Brisada at that point had been about 7. And she was really, she had heard about gangs and she was really worried about gangs in Chicago because Chicago was a big city. And, yeah. it's, and I'm like, no, there's no gangs where we're going to be. We're totally fine. You're totally safe. And visiting dad as we're about to leave for the city, he's like, well, be, you know, be careful of that block because there's a lot of gangs right two blocks away. And I'm just like, and Brissette's like, mom, there's gangs. Oh my God, dad, that's not helpful. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I have his voice in my head a lot with warnings and I'm able to say, thanks, dad. That's and sometimes I'll tell my kids the same warnings, but I'm like channeling Grandpa Tom. Well, just be aware. It makes me think, Okay, I'm excited. I'm going to go to a concert with my friends. It's going to be amazing. And you're joyful. And then someone loops in. Don't forget about death. Uh, (laughs) Watch for guns. You know, 
he didn't warn so much about assault as much as guns for whatever reason. He was yeah. never like carry mace because you might get assault. At least there I don't remember some, him There were some that. messages of assault, about assault, but not as many. Yeah. So it, it would more... make sense to me if any time you experience great joy or a big, massive amount of emotion, oh, death loops in. Yeah. Because that yeah. was pretty much the message growing it's, up. Absolutely. And funny thing, though, in terms of personal safety, um, like I have lived with roommates who were supremely cautious about locking doors at night and making sure all the windows were locked. Yet we grew up and we were the house that never locked anything. And in fact, our front door would sometimes often be just wide open. We would, nobody would be home and our, our screen door would be closed and the front door would be open because I would have friends who were like, yeah, I stopped by. I assumed you were home because the door was open, went in, hey, Lori, nobody's home. And so my friends were like, that's kind of unsafe. Like, why would, and yet we just grew up and maybe we grew up in a time where not many people locked their cars either in our, certainly in our neighborhood, but my friends all locked their cars and their houses. And yet we grew up not and so how that ties in with a dad who totally was paranoid about safety I don't that doesn't make any sense at all I mean that sounds like our mom yeah who grew up with that kind of open door and still is yes the same way yes very much so and will let strangers into her house not knowing she just told me this story the other day there was a woman who was wandering around um there were some I want to say roofing workers and there was a woman wandering around nearby outside her condo and uh mom went out to the mailbox or something and then walked back in her house and this woman followed her back in Hmm. followed her into her house without asking (laughs) and then was just in her hallway and Hmm. her front hallway and mom was like um can I help you with something and the woman was like can I use your bathroom and mom was like sure (laughs) and the woman (laughs) The woman stayed in the bathroom for like 20 minutes or Hmm. something was happening in the bathroom. And mom was there with her sisters. So they were kind of whispering about what to do. But then she came out and sat down and Hmm. was like looking at books. And (laughs) and mom, mom did not think to say, get out of my house, you weird stranger. What are you doing here? She just has this, huh. That's curious. What's uh, this about? That's so funny. Do you need some water? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, I think that she basically made the assumption this woman was on some kind of medication mm-hmm. and uh, talked to, eventually she left uh, and my mom <laughs> talked to one of the roofing guys and she's like, normally I would leave the door open for you. I have to leave. <laughs> I would leave the door open for you. But there's this crazy woman who is wandering my neighborhood. This this crazy woman just walked in my house and made herself at home. So I'm going to lock the door. But it's not because I don't trust you. (laughs) That's so funny. It's just the opposite. It is. It's totally... We're so socialized to be kind and not disrupt other people's agendas. Well, that kind of full circles it back to the original question about how do you know your feelings are valid? 
and not totally irrational. Because if you ask for, for instance, if I ask my husband um, to respond kindly or with consideration to something that I'm feeling, Mm -hmm. but if I'm feeling outrage every day and because of some Mm -hmm. something that's happening and uh that's it feels unreasonable I don't I I get very confused with this dynamic between people where especially with women because we're in this sort of awakening time where we all want to own our emotions and we all want to be heard Mm -hmm. and we want to know that our feelings matter mm-hmm. and our experiences matter. Yep. Yeah. And I think to summarize what I think what I was saying in a really loopy way before, <laughs> I think for me personally, because I was so enculturated to ignore emotion, I pretty much know that if I'm feeling something strongly, I'm going to listen to it because I, I, that emotion has been able to get past all the other barriers that I may have been putting in kind of subconsciously. And for me, it's also socially mitigated because I, I process things through talking. So I get feedback from girlfriends of, Mm -hmm. oh, that's totally reasonable. Oh my gosh, that totally makes sense. And so I'm able to kind of judge at least against a societal norm, whether I'm on track or not, whether I'm in the norm or out of the norm with respect to my the type of emotion that I'm having. So you have a series of inspections. I have a series of inspections before the emotion is allowed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That works for you, though, it sounds like. It does. It does. Um, Except for the fact that I still am working with myself to not question emotions. Like, if I feel something, that's fine. Mm -hmm. And even if it is, like, like men who are like, oh, women shouldn't be allowed to do X, Y, and Z because their their periods are going to th- screw up their emotions and they're going to, the, like the whole submarine of women is going to be all PMSy at the same <laughs> time and nobody's going to make rational decisions. Like, okay, that's bullshit. So, <laughs> so it's not, it's, it's okay to feel your emotions even if they're based in chemistry because that's the way everybody is. It's mm-hmm. just we have different types of chemicals flooding our bodies. Are you and, com- are you comfortable saying if a woman comes to you and is like, my partner, he put two mismatched socks together and put it in my drawer. I am furious. I'm kicking him out. Like, are you comfortable saying to them, I think you're overreacting? Or how do you respond when you're like, this is beyond the range of healthy? Yeah. I... Or not healthy, beyond the range, what, what is normal, beyond the range of reasonable, Yeah, I guess. There's some scope of reasonable that is like a weird bubble. And like, for instance, and I want you to talk about attachment disorder. Mm-hmm. With that, you'll, you see a lot of emotions that mm-hmm. are outside of the range of reasonable. Yeah. Yep. And you still have to deal with it because it's still happening. Right. And it's still right there in front of you. Yep. So does it even matter whether it's outside the range of reasonable or not? Right. I think um, I personally am not good at confrontation. So Um. I tend to, and it's very typical, stereotypical female thing as opposed to a man thing to do. I will, I rarely would say to somebody directly, that's unreasonable because Uh that feels uh, 
confrontative. Oh, no. It God, is. God forbid we should be confrontative. Never I mean, say you're being unreasonable unless you absolutely have to, to anyone, I would say. Right. Um, but I would probably find a roundabout way to say, like, wow, a lot of people wouldn't be bothered by that. What? Oh. What is it about it that bothered you? Nine out of ten people wouldn't be bothered by mismatched socks. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe, is you know, and sometimes if you dig beneath, below it, it's not that the socks, it's not that she's angry about the socks. It's something else. It's that she's told him a dozen times, mm-hmm. I really don't like mismatched socks. So and she's not being please heard. Don't, and she's mm-hmm. not being heard. So a lot of times stuff that on the surface seems unreasonable, quote unreasonable, it is reasonable. It's just reasonable at a different level, at a at a deeper level, if you open up to that kind of deeper understanding. I totally agree. I think this is where there was great benefit growing up in our household where we did have to analyze yes, all the emotions. <laughs> because it does make you go, am I mad about this? What's underneath? What am I really mad at? Yeah. What do I really... And if I'm mad at something, I probably need something I'm not getting. So yeah. what is it that I really need? Yeah. Yeah, or a lot of, for my parenting, and this ties into attachment, um, a lot of stuff is fear-based. So a lot of stuff, even under anger, like sometimes you'll be like, why am I doing this? Oh, I'm angry. Why am I angry? And sometimes it often can come back to a death. It comes back to death uh-huh. because you're afraid. Survival. Yeah, you're afraid of something, and so you're angry at the person who's at some level making you feel unsafe, but you're not at all aware that that's making you feel unsafe. I've heard two things. I've heard that fear and anger are flip sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And if you're angry, it's most likely that you're afraid of something. Mm -hmm. And then I've also heard that our survival instincts socially are so ingrained in terms of going back, you know, to when we were tribal, traveling around hunting beasts to survive, Mm -hmm. that if you got kicked out of the tribe, you mm. would die. Yep. So there's a really intense genetic need to be accepted. Yes. And part of the fear of putting yourself out there and saying, I know this is risky to say this, but I feel pissed that you mismatched my socks. And yeah. you're just putting it out there. It feels like a risk. Part of that is because you don't, you're, you're little reptile brain doesn't want to get kicked out of the tribe yeah it just feels risky to share any feelings absolutely absolutely because I I think with with even just with friendships well I don't want to make them mad at me because totally might the friendship might not Mm -hmm. survive my challenging my saying that I'm angry might just disrupt the whole relationship um and I have in terms of anger I had realized early in our marriage that my husband Mark and I uh, process anger differently. Perhaps neither one of us is totally balanced in how we process anger. Um, but <laughs> Are both you American? Us- <laughs> because that seems to be a trend. <laughs> uh, but both of us grew up in households where anger was not acceptable. You couldn't express anger. You just shouldn't be angry. Nobody should be angry. Uh-huh. And if you were angry, apart from let's totally analyze why you're angry. That's uh-huh. how we grew up. You just never... There was never an okay way to express it, so you just never expressed it. It's just, yeah, where does all that anger go? I think it goes into your body, and you hold it in different places. And you get sick. And you get sick. and Or tense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tense, headaches, headaches, tensions, yeah, stomach aches, all kinds of stuff. 
Um, and there was one thing in talking about being irrational and unreasonable about how do you uh, how do you deal when people are calling you unreasonable or not, or how do you trust your emotions or not? Yeah. Um, just as an example of dad and how he <laughs> how uh, he just he needed everything to make sense, and if you were mm-hmm. not completely logical about something, it didn't compute for him. Yeah. Um, when uh, can I tell the story of a little bit of how Julian was? yeah it's kind of a complicated please do there's the backstory and then there's a situation that I want to mention but you have to tell the backstory you have to know the backstory um so when Abby's my oldest daughter and when she was one I was diagnosed with breast cancer uh I thought it was a plug I was nursing her and had where were you living well I was living in Madison when she was born and uh found a a lump in my breast that we thought was a plugged milk duct. Mm -hmm. And the doctors here said, oh, yeah, plugged milk duct. You know, me, yeah, get it. Because you're 20... 28. 28, 29, yeah. And um, so they said, yeah, yeah, maybe you should get that checked out. But we were in the process of moving to Australia because a previous employer had uh, basically recruited us slash me I, I, I was wanted by Yay. a company. They wanted to pay me to work for them. Um, <laughs> and so uh, they hired us to say, they said, we'll set you up in Australia for a few years if you'll come back and work for us. Yes, please. And that's what we said. Yes, please. They said, name your price. I said, um. I, I called dad and I was like, what what price? What price do I name? I don't I, I don't know what price. And he told me what felt like a god awfully high price. And I was like, Okay. 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 <laughs> so Mark and I decided we were like, we have a six month old. We said, well, we'll come to Australia, but you have to fly our our cousin out. Katie came out as our nanny. So mm-hmm. yeah. And in fact, you came out at one point. We mm-hmm. were there for a shorter time mm-hmm. and we were like, oh no, Mark has to go home. Nobody to take care of the baby. And I'm nursing. You have to fly my sister out to come and watch the baby <laughs> in Australia for me. It was a crazy time. But mm-hmm. so we moved to Australia and rented out our house and sold our car and in 10 days I I had a mammogram and an ultrasound down there and in 10 days they said I would was the visit with the doctor and they were like yeah this is cancer Uh, oh my god so we (laughs) so we mm. made arrangements to fly back so quit that job basically it was totally upending life it was crazy um coming back on the plane I had I decided to I had to stop nursing right like cold turkey, which was excruciatingly painful. Difficult. It was very difficult. Uh, For everyone. Oh, and so I because that was Abby's main solace, her was her main comfort. I decided not to totally stop nursing until we got back to the states because it was a thirteen-hour plane ride, and I did not want the child being weaned. She was a year old, so she was old enough. But yeah, with that being a habit, it's like, yeah, let's not have a crying on the flight toddler on the flight. So, so but I stopped on the breast that was affected. I stopped nursing, and I just kept on the other breast for that day or two. Was there a chance that somehow the cancer would have been in the milk? In the milk? Yeah. How does no, that work? In in well, in theory, no. And I hadn't even thought of that until Dad, of course, was like, what do you mean you didn't stop nursing on both breasts immediately? Couldn't the baby get cancer from your milk? And I was like, oh, my God, no. I no, that's no. The doctors did not indicate anything about that. They said, yes, they said that they wanted me to stop nursing because of 
the surgery. It would be easier to do the surgery if there wasn't milk involved. And after I started chemo, I would have had to have stopped because chemo will go through the breast milk. Yeah, that that yeah. makes sense. The chemo. Yeah, because- and I suppose post-op post-op medications and stuff would also so it had made pass through yeah it had made sense for me to in my mind it made sense for me to stop nursing before the surgery but I wasn't gonna necessarily stop before the flight (laughs) before the flight home yeah that makes a lot of sense um and so dad met us at the airport and I remember we were on an escalator on the way to pick up the luggage and he just shakes his head and he's like well if you survive this you'll have a story to tell Mm. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> death. Death. Does, yeah. does it come back to you're going to die? <laughs> Way to be supportive in my moment That's, of need. Yeah, like how about we not talk about my death when I've just arrived back on the continent? Yeah. Um, oh, my God. So so anyway, so had Abby, we could go into detail, a whole bunch of, whole bunch of other stories about cancer, but on the subject of fertility and babies. Uh, and your so, other. And my other child, yeah. my other biological child yes. that I started talking about. Um, so after the cancer, they said uh, it was hormonally linked, and so they said I it would be unsafe for me to get pregnant again. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, they said, "Oh, the pregnancy probably contributed to the growth of the tumor." Really? Mm-hmm. I, oh, yep. And what, what, what was the name of this kind of cancer? Um, it was just a uh, it was just a breast carcinoma. In I'm trying to think. It wasn't Adeno, a genetic. It was thing. not a genetic thing. I chose to not get tested at that time genetic testing had just gotten started but um I was it was interesting because I'd said um I was not I was at a, I was a stage three out of four stages mm-hmm. so it was not caught early it was uh it had it hadn't it had spread to one lymph node mm-hmm. but the tumor was really really big so they um I think they said 15 centimeters how does 15 centimeters fit into my breast that was what I wanted to know but they never told me that. Um, <laughs> so, and I had gone in for a lumpectomy, but because it was too big, I woke up with a mastectomy. So that was lovely. Also, you um, didn't know going in. That I didn't know going you in. Would have a missing breast coming right. out. I, I had said if anything happens, I would rather have you do it right away rather than wake me up and then say, okay, we have to go back into surgery. So I had given them the okay for it, but you gave them the okay. That's good to know. You gave permission, but but still it wasn't, wasn't the plan. Oh yeah. Um, so that's sad. It was sad. So I had a so I guess big picture it was uh it was not a good picture for me. It was a very aggressive, very fast growing uh very, you know, l- late stage, not early stage sort of situation and so they threw all the chemotherapy and radiation and stuff that they could at me. Mm-hmm. Um and they said among other things, they said don't get pregnant again because we think it's dangerous. Um current research now 20 years later might has shown something slightly different but at the time they were like this will it will kill you so we said well we want more than one child we've always wanted more than one kid let's adopt and I needed letters from the doctors to say yes Lori's healthy enough to adopt and my uh, my oncologist was uh he wrote the letter for us but he said in our decision making he this was when he said well you know it Mark and I were both there and he's like well it shouldn't be Lori you shouldn't even think about whether you want more than one child Mark you should decide if you want to be a parent to one child like a single parent to one child or more than one child you're kidding me yeah that was my my oncologist this was after the chemo during chemo after chemo yeah yeah so it was way to be positive that was his well it was actually 
that was dad talking. Like if you think of how he would have, he would have said, well, what's the worst case scenario? Were you and okay with it? Were you okay with getting I, that advice? I, yes and no. I think, I think at the time, I believe I was stifling my emotions and yeah. my fear because that was what I had been trained to do. And there's so many big emotions that come up with cancer that, um, and because I could totally have seen dad saying the same thing, because mm-hmm. like he mm-hmm. wouldn't, mm-hmm. if I had asked him for advice, which I didn't, he would have said, well, what's the worst case scenario? So would Mark, mm-hmm. the worst case scenario is, you know, you die and Mark has to raise the child mm-hmm. alone. And so because I knew that would be, it wasn't totally foreign to me because dad would have said that. Yeah. But it's pretty appalling. I can't believe he said that to a patient. That's just. Especially knowing how much your sort of attitude plays into getting right. better with yes. that kind of treatment. So it was, yes. So it was. Uh, it was an odd choice, but he did write the letter. He didn't refuse to write me a letter for adoption. It was just, it, 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 I think in the letter, he probably wrote something like, well, Lori's fine for now. And okay, <laughs> we expect she will do well based on the treatment she's given. Mm-hmm. And I actually never asked him for statistics. I said, don't tell me statistics because I knew uh, I was not in the range where everybody got recurrences, but I was not in the range where nobody got recurrences. And so mm-hmm. I said, any statistics going to make me feel bad. So I'm just not going to ask statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mark and I went on to adopt. We adopted twice from Guatemala. So we had three kids then, Abby, Berseda, and Gabe. And that was our family, three kids. I had my tubes tied because then uh, I didn't have to use. Uh, How old were you when you had your tubes tied? 33. Mm-hmm. So it was a few years after the cancer. It was after all the chemo was done and after my body had recovered enough. Uh, and I, Mark had offered to get a vasectomy because it's the easier surgery. But So you had your tubes tied before you adopted? Right around the same time. Okay. Someplace in there. I think we had adopted at least once before I got my tubes tied. It might have been uh-huh. around the time that we're like, yep, we're totally fine with the family that we had. Yeah. Um, and Mark said... That he argued that he should get the vasectomy because uh, it's an easier surgery. Uh-huh. But I, I said, we would use the euphemism, what if I get hit by a bus? So we wouldn't ever say, what if I die from cancer? Or what if the cancer comes back? Mm. We would say, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, oh. then. Uh-huh. And so, <laughs> so I said, if I get hit by a bus and you're stuck as a single parent to three mm-hmm. children, I said, you might want more kids. So if you get oh. remarried and... She's younger or How something. How generous of you. Yeah. No, it, but we had this argument, and I later told his mom about that, because and he hadn't ever told her that, that we'd had that discussion, and yeah. I said, that's actually a really sweet thing, because he argued, like, we argued about it. Huh. No, no, it should be do the easier one for his mm-hmm. butt, and I'm like, no, no, mm-hmm. if I get hit by a bus, you're going to want more kids. Yeah. Um, but it was very generous. It was very lovely. Um, but I ended up doing getting the tube ligation, and, and then... A few years after that, Gabe was going into kindergarten, and I was really PMSing. Can you tell me what a tubal ligation is, just in case someone doesn't know? Yes. A tubal ligation is a surgery where they went in and um, they kind of cut the fallopian tubes, and uh, they, cu- they, they called them tying the tubes because I think technically you could tie a little knot in each end of them to block them off. Sometimes they burn them, sometimes they... But it it prevents... the f- it cuts off the fallopian tubes so dead end road for those eggs dead end road for those eggs yes and um do you still ovulate then i do it's just I uh do. yep you do it's they're just, all piled up at the end 
I'm assuming they disintegrate someplace in there. Uh, yeah, rather than have this huge pile of eggs like sitting in the bottom of the abdominal cavity. Yeah, that'd be that'd be good. Um, that's funny. No, and I evidently re well, so I was having symptoms of pregnancy, like tender breasts, really moody, really and nauseous, and I'm like, there's no way I can be pregnant because I had my tubes tied. I actually thought. I was like, if it were a tubal pregnancy, like if the egg had, if mm. somehow a sperm had gotten through that blockage in the tube, to, that can be a very dangerous situation because then the egg tries to grow in the fallopian tube, which is not a good environment for the egg, and it can burst and cause mass- massive bleeding. And so I said, maybe I should get a pregnancy test just to make sure that I don't have a tubal, which I don't know if a tubal pregnancy would cause me to have these pregnancy symptoms, yeah. but... So I bought a pregnancy test, and I distinctly remember it was a Sunday morning. Mark was mowing the lawn, and I did this test just randomly in the bathroom at our house, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm pregnant. Like, (laughs) there's one, there's the two lines. Oh, my God. And I went out the door, and, you know, Mark, Mark, get get in here right now. And he's he had no clue, I think, that I even had bought the pregnancy test. Uh (laughs) He was like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I'm pregnant. He's like, you can't be. I'm like... I'm pregnant. And I, it was, and I, that was, well, and then the next day was Monday. So I called my OB-GYN to, I said to verify that I was pregnant. Um, and it happened to be my daughter, Abby's birthday. Mm. And so she, I went to the doctor and I believe Mark did not go with me to the doctor that morning. I remember hmm. early in this pregnancy, it was, there were conversations where, maybe a husband would want to go to the doctor with you. And he'd be like, oh, but I'm working. And I'd be like, oh, that's okay. You don't need to come. And in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, he should have come with uh-huh. me. Because my I went to the doctor essentially like expecting either, no, the home pregnancy test is wrong, mm-hmm. even though I hear they're never wrong, you know, or it was a tubal pregnancy, which would have necessitated something. Like basically yeah. I was not expecting news that I got, which was, yeah, you'd be pregnant. And I was... I then called my oncologist because I'm like, you said this would kill me. And I asked the doctor, the OB-GYN, I'm like, the doctor said this would kill me. And what do I do? And what do I do? That's a pickle. And so I left her office. <laughs> Quite with, the conundrum. With a, a prescription for prenatal vitamins and the phone number of Planned Parenthood because I didn't know what mm. would what to do and I spent that whole day kind of crying but trying to hide it because it was Abby's birthday oh right and Abby totally remembers she's like you were so weird that day she was like yeah it was my birthday party but you kept you came with the red eyes and your red face and I'm like yeah I did of course she remembers of course that she day and out of the thousands of days yeah and, and Gabe That's started funny. kindergarten that week so I went from so my thoughts up that summer was like oh my youngest is starting kindergarten what's next for me like do I want to go back to work I'd been home with the kids like do I want to get a job do I um what's my future mm. gonna be the universe will show me something and I I, I said I should have been more specific with <laughs> I, the five-year plan this was not the five-year plan I had expected to be baking um and what surprised me was my oncologist who called me back on his vacation so this was also in terms of he was a little brutal sometimes, but he also mm. was a very good doctor in other respects. Um, because I called to say, you said this would kill me, but I'm pregnant. And it, I didn't 
plan this like it wasn't supposed to happen but what do I do is this still gonna kill me because that's not good Mm -hmm. Um, and he's like well (laughs) he said well uh back then we thought it would kill you because this is 10 years had passed and so he's like back then we really thought it would kill you now we don't know oh your favorite answer we don't know. We don't know. So good and, luck making your choice. Yeah, that was it. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, he was because really at that time, half of the doctors, as I then went, put my my logical mind to work. And yeah, I'm sure you're like data, please. Data, data. Where's the data? There was no data. So half of the doctors were, were recommending termination of pregnancies because it was dangerous. And half of the doctors were like, well, we don't know it'll kill you. And we don't know it'll make the... We don't know that the pregnancy will give you a recurrence like during the pregnancy or shortly afterwards or we don't know. They're like, we don't know. So you can make your own decision. And it was not uh, it was very challenging because I faced then an ethical dilemma where I'm not I'm pro-choice in theory for sure. Yeah, I think women have the right to decide for their own bodies what especially before any before the infant's viable, I think. I strongly believe in pro-choice when it comes to personally though I'm like I am I meant to carry this energy with me is this meant to happen or I'm a mom to three kids like is it irresponsible of me to continue a pregnancy if Mm. I think this is going to kill me like is that Mm -hmm. if I have a recurrence in the seventh month of pregnancy or six months of pregnancy or fifth months of pregnancy like if I have a recurrence and they then say you need to start, you need to abort the baby because we need to start chemo now. Wow. Or no, you wait on chemo for four months because you're holding, because you're, you're pregnant. Like just the, the choices, if I was going to make a choice, I wanted to make it early because I didn't want to then, it was scary to run the risk of throughout the pregnancy wondering, is cancer going to come back Mm -hmm. because of the pregnancy possibly. But even if it did come back, not because of the pregnancy, if it came back during the pregnancy, I think there's ethical questions that come up also of do you, what do you do? Is the baby viable? Do you treat? Do you not treat? All that sort of stuff. And so we, as part of my data gathering, we decided to do some genetic testing for me to see if I carried the breast cancer gene, the mm-hmm. um, BRCA, because I'm not, I was not a fan of, I'm not a fan of testing in general, either genetic testing or MRIs or CAT scans, unless the outcome is going to change what you do. Uh-huh. Because that makes sense. For me, I didn't want to know necessarily if I had the the breast cancer gene or not. It's not in our family history, so I suspected it probably wasn't. Mm-hmm. But if I back with the initial cancer, if I had gotten the brac if I gotten the test done and I was positive, they would then say, "Well, you should probably take your ovaries out." And already at that time 10 years ago, most doctors were saying you should take your ovaries out. Mm. And my doctor said it would be safest to take your ovaries out. That's what he recommended. But he knew that at my age, it would cause a huge, uh, like, sudden burst into menopause, which was Ah. not pleasant. So he said it would be safest. Generally, he recommends that you would take the ovaries out. But in my case, I had to decide because the quality of life was a concern. Mm. And so I decided not, imagine that 10 years ago had not decided to take the ovaries out and lo and behold, now I have, <laughs> now I have a child. And at that point they knew that one variant of the genes was more, if I had one particular variant, 
it would be more likely that a pregnancy would cause a recurrence. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, if there's any data that I can hang my hat on, which, you know, I said, if there's, I can do this one test and if it comes back and I can test the, we did a CVS test for the baby, the chorionic, like like an amnio, but earlier. So a chorionic villi sampling, like a, to see if the chromosomes are all to make sure the chromosomes looking good. good. Mm -hmm. And so, because I said, if the chromosomes are looking good and if I don't have this additional gene that would make it a higher risk for me, we'll say that this was meant to be. And so, uh, so that's what we ended up doing, but it took those first three months were horribly, horribly stressful. I remember telling you and mom, I, we were like a family thing at mom's house. And I'm like, you have to come out to the garage. I do remember that we were in the driveway and the garage door was open and you said you were crying and you said, I'm pregnant. (laughs) And we were both like, um, what? I think mom (laughs) said, you can't be. Yeah. No, you're not. No, you're not. (laughs) You're no. Mm -mm. Like, yes, yes, I am. That can't be true. Uh, Yeah. I also remember you coming in to get body work or energy work and there was so much heat in your yeah. sacral chakra <laughs> and I'm like, that was it's really warm down here that was before I knew I was pregnant that was before I knew mm-hmm. and I remember yeah like afterwards after I found out I was pregnant I was like man Chrissy totally called this <laughs> like who knew that a week before I knew I was pregnant she could figure it out yeah that was I'm so struck by the level of faith that you had in this was meant to be that it it overrided because you've said how much logic plays into your emotions in general just in life yeah this was one gigantic leap of faith it really totally was it totally was and my husband who's a optimist eternally he was like well of course we're meant to have another baby and he was like, I guess it's your decision whether we terminate or not. And oh. I, that pissed me off because I was like, we're in this together. You're not helping me. Um, and I felt guilty that I, I, the whole situation, but I, and I couldn't talk to very many people about it because of the weightedness of the idea of terminating a pregnancy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting because I did, after I did share with a few friends, I had more people come up and be like, oh, well, you know, I had an abortion years ago. Like that opened up a discussion and made it feel far more, far less um, stigmatized because people really had done it. It's just nobody talks about it. No one talks about it. Um, And I had a good friend of mine who's a minister. She said after I had made the decision, she was very supportive for me all the way through. But afterwards, when she knew we were going to keep the pregnancy, she was like, frankly she's like I talked with my husband about it and we wouldn't have been able to we wouldn't have had the trust to keep it wow and that made me feel good too because it made me feel like I in questioning even that I wasn't because growing up Catholic like oh my gosh you would never think of terminating a Mm -hmm. pregnancy but it so it made me feel guilty that I was even considering it and it's it was a whole bundle of ethical stuff and guilt and fear and all that stuff so so I waited until I was over three months pregnant to tell dad because oh. my mm. uh, my logical. I'm surprised you didn't wait till the day the baby was born. You know, I, <laughs> I might have been a better plan. Could have been the better plan. But I totally, I told, I totally told you guys like in the first couple of weeks, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, and so I, I remember I had asked my oncologist for medical references, like mm-hmm. citations that I could email to to dad, and I called him. 
and I said, I have some news. You know, it's very unexpected, um, but I'm pregnant. Mm, mm. And he was like, mm. you can't be. Mm-hmm. What? No, you're not. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. Did he hang up on you? Well, I said, and we're carrying the baby to term. Uh-huh. And he's like, what the hell do you mean? Mm-hmm. Why? Why would you not get an abortion? That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I said, I have some citations that I can send to you because the doctors say it most it may not kill me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, he and yeah, he hung up on me. Like he was like, what do you mean you're not terminating the baby? And he hung up on me. Mm. And then he called back or I called back. I think he I think he hung up on me. I emailed him the stuff. He called me back and he was like, so tell me again. He's like, well. Actually, he said, you know, statistically, there's a chance of recurrence for you. Like, there totally is. And Did he, he must have read everything before calling you. Evidently. So he's like, so there's a risk for recurrence. And the, and the tail of the curve of, for recurrence rates, it's not going to get smaller with a pregnancy. It's going to get bigger. So your chance of recurrence is going to increase with this baby. Even if you terminate, there's already a chance of chance of recurrence. And he's God, like... He's- just not supportive at all in any direction (laughs) just the opposite of support I'm like I know I know statistics I know statistically there's a chance of recurrence I think the doctors don't know what impact this would have on the but I said regardless we've weighed our we've done our collecting of data and Mm -hmm. and he's like well I guess this makes sense because you're pregnant so you're not thinking clearly (gasps) Oh you're, my God! I guess this it just gets <laughs> worse and worse. <laughs> you're clearly irrational because you're. Oh pregnant. my God! So I guess that makes sense why you're not acting logically. Oh my God! Here. And I think he might have hung up on me again. It was just it was like unsupportive fr- and belittling. Yeah. Uh, was, but again, and to- <laughs> you should and you should have just been able to say, no. I know this is going to be hard for you, Dad, but I'm pregnant. We're keeping it. Because I want to. Yes. Like, that should have been right, enough. Right. But no. No, no. That was not. Here's all the data. Here's all the, No, I... <laughs> d- did I know him or did I know him? Yeah, here's but all the data. It didn't help. It, uh, no, it didn't. Oh, my God. And I think God. then he called mom. I think afterwards, mom said that he got off the phone with me. And They're divorced. They are divorced. They had been divorced We're at that divorced. point for... 15 years? Probably. 20 years. 20 years. They'd been divorced at that point for almost 20 years. Mm. So he calls. I hung. He hangs up with me and calls her. Like, did you know? And mom's like, yeah, I've known for months. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, how, why didn't you convince her to terminate the pregnancy? Mm-hmm. Like, his view was totally, um, totally, totally, totally logic. Well, fear-based. Fear-based using logic to support that. Because, yeah. I um, mean, sure, he had a point. It was risky, but it, you were the person deciding to take the risk. Right. And it's not like I didn't know the risk. Mm-hmm. It's I clearly, I, you know. I and knew. I think knowing you, he probably should have known you right. do the research. You knew the risk. You made your decision. So. Right. Accept it. Yeah. Yeah. when we were when I was in high school and I didn't really have a I didn't I had 
one boyfriend in high school, but it wasn't hugely serious. And but I remember in in thinking all the well, what if like what if this were to happen or what if that were to happen? Mm -hmm. I remember thinking it would just be unthinkable for me to get pregnant because dad would be like you have to abort the baby and ah, mom would be like oh no you you, there's, can't. you can't abort the baby because she's catholic and he's an atheist yeah and and that mm -hmm. and even even religion aside i think certainly religious beliefs influenced the both of those views but i think even apart from that they would have probably been on different sides of the issue mm -hmm. and uh and i remember i i think it's it's odd if you think of it that when i thought about getting pregnant well, how old were you this was in high school so say 15 16 i ha wasn't having sex but just the the oh. the hypothetical hypothetically the hypothetical what if yeah. what if i were to have sex and get pregnant because of course bad things would happen unexpected things would happen to me um, yeah, they, I wasn't thinking, wow, raising a baby in high school or college would be really hard. No, it was, my parents are going to divorce because <laughs> that situation would be, they would get angry. They would fight. They would, oh. they would not agree. It goes back to how do you process emotions and anger was so unthinkable in my mind that I couldn't conceive of how they would repair their relationship if I were to get pregnant. This is wonderful hearing this because it's all coming together. Just the un the inability to process anger for so many years and the inability to even think about making someone else angry. Yeah. How risky that felt. Just <laughs> everything that you're saying, all these pieces are falling into place. It's like, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so that was, and then, we, so. I went on, and the rest of the pregnancy was slightly less stressful. Did he come around to, you know, eventually, while you were still pregnant, or was he still pretty pissed the whole way through? He was pretty pissed the whole way through. Um, he he was relieved, I think, as was I, frankly, because the, the rest of the pregnancy I had in the back of my mind sort of the, what if the cancer comes back now? Of course. How so, did you deal with that stress? I... I didn't deal with it very well, I think. I, I remember one time going, this was with, I think, the cancer earlier, but I had come to you for energy work, and mm -hmm. you were like, okay, just relax, and you're like, you're breathing really fast. Like, <laughs> just slow down your breathing, and I'm like, I can't. I can't slow down my breathing, and you're like, no, relax, and I'm like, this is relaxed, and you were just, you were like... No. let's take a deep breath you're yeah. not breathing yeah. and you were and you were also like boy they cut off your breast isn't that traumatic and I remember saying if they had said cut off both your arms to live I would have cut off both my arms yeah I like, remember you saying that yeah like I, the breast losing the breast was tr it was an adjustment but it was it's interesting because really the life and death issues the the issues of I'm going to die goes all goes back to death uh -huh. the fear of this is going to kill me outweighed and the idea of because I didn't because of all this I couldn't breastfeed it's almost mm -hmm. like stopping breastfeeding suddenly and having to adjust my thinking about that was almost worse than losing the breast entirely mm. which is odd um so so yeah no I think but dad loved Julian then once he was born yeah, um, I no do problems wonder, after the fact. No, I do wonder how the how the mix of stressed chemicals for during the pregnancy affected poor Julian because I I they they show that 
like mothers who are anxious or mothers who are depressed prenatally can affect how their children's brain develops. Tell me more. Um, well, they, they've done MRIs, I believe, of babies, like non-invasive scans um, of babies' brains after birth where some of the mothers were depressed and some of the mothers were not. Or some clinically of the mothers depressed. Were and clinically, like clinical anxiety, clinical yeah. depression. And, uh, the Through babies, the whole pregnancy? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and babies' ba- brains are different like oh god no pressure ladies yeah totally (laughs) it's it's like we have control yeah we different how though control well I believe I'm trying to remember the specifics but I I know it I believe it has to do with how the babies then handle stress so the babies might be more sensitive to stress in ways um that the functioning I think for babies born to higher stress mothers I think the outcomes would be considered less advantageous so um, there's a lot that they're learning about brain development and early brain development and just Mm -hmm. like a just like abuse or neglect or malnutrition can affect a newborn babies Mm -hmm. like a, a infant in the first year of life how you might be like oh no that baby was in adverse conditions and they're uh, their growth is stunted or their uh, their behavior is affected or their problem solving is affected. Basically, they're extending that to the prenatal so scene of cortisol and adrenaline and yeah, not yes. enough dopamine or yeah, that it affects then the children's. And so I think that's partly how anxiety runs in families. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's not, th- I mean, in, some stress is normal, so it's not like you want a no-stress environment because our whole systems are designed that stress is a normal part of life. It's that extreme, extreme situations that uh, that take you to where it then can become less functional. So I just want to, for half a second, just say that you, after having adopted, then eventually started working with adoption families. and. Yeah. Um, I have a question about potential adoptive parents Mm -hmm. who might be concerned about who's carrying the baby that Mm -hmm. will then soon become theirs because they can't control factors like malnutrition. And so how do you counsel them for things like that that are just... Yeah, out of their control. Mm -hmm. Um, And not always visible. mm -hmm. The baby looks healthy. Everything looks great you know yep yeah I go back to and I do I have I teach classes for pre-adoptive parents now so I do uh, have families who've had questions all over the spectrum about what they're worried about or mm-hmm. what they're not worried about um, and I I describe it to them as if adoption itself people who even before they come to my classes because if they've come to my classes they basically are looking into adoption or have decided that they want to mm-hmm and I think being willing to adopt at all is having faith that there's going to be unknowns that you just don't have control over. Which you can speak to very well after your... Which I can speak to very well, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, personally and professionally, you don't have control. Uh, so the... so, And I think anybody getting pregnant mm-hmm. faces that same thing because you... you so if you're getting pregnant yourself, you almost have the illusion that you're in control because it, mm-hmm. you may, and you may get a little obsessive trying to 
I'm giving uh, up caffeine. I'm giving up little? sugar. I'm giving up. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking all these vitamins. <laughs> oh, but wait, I have to take this. Right. You know, not quite so much iron. Or, like mm-hmm. you can get really. Don't touch that meat. Yeah, yeah. In no fact, lunch meat. In fact, I laughed because I totally ate lunch meat through Julian's <laughs> pregnancy because I'm like, well, 10 years ago, I did it with Abby. That was one of the things that had changed for advice for parents. No lunch meat, no blue cheese. Yeah, and I just ignored those. No fish. I also kept coffee. I, I, I told... No caffeine. I mm-hmm. think in the doctor's no alcohol. office, the very first day in the office with the doctor, mm-hmm. I was like, and don't make me give up coffee because I just can't... I can't <laughs> give up coffee. <laughs> I drank... I think I drank wine for Esme's pregnancy. Yeah. Not every night, but I was like, it's fine. They it's, do it in Europe. It's so... We're good. Uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. The, the idea that... And the idea that I think I'm controlling the outcome. You can... You can you certainly can control your body, but you still can't control the outcome. You can't. You just can't. Yeah. And um, it's kind of like women with a birth plan, with a birthing plan where they're like this is gonna it's gonna happen like this and that's gonna happen next mm-hmm. and yeah early no. label labor will last approximately four and a half hours <laughs> at which time I will go to the hospital yeah at which yeah no yeah so it's it's funny so I so I usually congratulate the families that I talk to because they've already let go of the need to control some stuff um and um because if they, if you have a strong need to control the genetics of the baby, if that feels very important, um, then you would never look into adoption because it would be too scary. You would go another route. Right. And most of the people who do choose to adopt have gone another route first and uh, it just hasn't worked. So mm-hmm. most, by far most of the people that I've, that I work with have gone through some degree of infertility treatments. So they've come, they've already had disappointments and loss and lack of control and expenses, disappointment and expenses. expenses and How much is it, do you know, for a one a tr- attempt at? I don't know. I'm thinking in the tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what I've heard too. So yeah, very, very expensive. Um, do you, so your teaching business is called? Red Thread. Do yep. you want to say why it's called Red Thread? Yeah. Um, the company name that I chose was Red Thread Learning. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, I pulled the name from uh, Chinese, at, at least in the Chinese adoption world. And at late later, I found out that there's actually a couple of different uh, cultures or religions that have a red thread that has meaning. But in uh, my understanding had been that in China, there is a thought that you are connected by this invisible red thread to those the people who are important to you, whether or not they're currently with you. So you're connected to your ancestors and to the people who will be your children Mm -hmm. and to, uh, you know, my sister who's across the world or that you have this invisible red thread linking all of your family together. And I don't remember, I don't know if it extends to just people who are important beyond family, but it certainly encompasses family. And so because I view, I do view adoption as one way to build a family. And I think that however you build your family, that kind of our children are meant to be our children. Mm -hmm. So I do believe that we're connected uh, to those who came before us and to those who came after. Um, It's just that my kids and through them, me, I suppose, but my kids are connected both to birth family and to our family. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've talked with them each as they were growing up about how I, it's very sad for them that they can't, be with that 
that the situations were such that they couldn't be born to their birth moms and stay with her, that mm-hmm. that's really sad. Like, that really sucks. Yeah. And I'm just very grateful that they... I'm grateful that they came into my lives, however that came. And had they been born to me, that would have been great. But the fact that they came to me through loss is hurtful for them. It's painful for them. But yeah. I still think that it was meant to be. So, mm-hmm. um, And I hope, too, that the birth moms are... And we're, we're not in contact with birth family, so... Um, they didn't want contact? Um, it was an international adoption, and so it was... I do know families who adopted through our agency who do are in contact, who got in contact. Mm -hmm. In our case, we got like a letter from each birth mother. In one case, just a very short note. And in one case, like a letter describing her situation. And, um, but other than that, we do, we had sent letters and pictures for a while down to the agency. So if the birth moms ever came back, they could retrieve them. But we've not ever uh, heard that they have. Um, we were in contact with the foster families for a while because each baby, they were born in Guatemala and lived with a foster family for a number of months. Uh-huh. Um, and they had sent cards and pictures to us. So we, I remember Gabe had gotten birthday cards from his foster mom for oh, a couple wow. of years afterwards. Huh. Um, but so, yeah, but, so we're all connected. We're all connected. That's well, the red thread. So, yeah, the red thread. Do you think it connects to souls that haven't been born yet? I do. I do. And I kind of, my, my, my spiritual philosophy, I, I do think that we pick our situations in life. I think we Mm -hmm. pick who we're going to be surrounded by and what, maybe not specifically what lessons we're going to learn, but we come with a kind of a general plan in mind. So I think that we are connected to general plan in mind for the spiritual lessons you'll have in life. I think so. Which makes me wonder, there have been many, many times where I'm like, what the hell was I thinking with, <laughs> why did I have to pick a really hard plan, Chrissy? <laughs> I'm not ready for this hard plan. But you are, apparently. Or you no, were. Apparently. So. I am, I've been thinking a lot about this kind of stuff, and I feel like I need to throw away everything I think I knew, and then start all over again, because I'm just not sure. I'm starting yeah. to think that there, I know there's definitely parallel universes, and I'm starting to think that everything maybe is happening all at the same time mm-hmm. in, in all these universes. Mm-hmm. And our soul lessons play a huge part in what we experience. But then there's this other factor of free will. Yeah. And how that yeah, plays I, in is so confusing. Right. No, I've, I've, that question of free will versus destiny sort of is it's a balance I think I'd really I think it interacts and I I do the concept of the multiple universes or multiple realities occurring simultaneously actually totally makes that resonated with me when you mentioned that yesterday or yeah recently just because I I totally think there's an alternate reality where I had died from the cancer why do you think that I've just I've had a strong feeling of that for a very long time um and some of it you could say oh that just comes from negative thinking where early mm. close to the cancer I might be like you know well I was in a clinical trial that got me some medicine that ended up working it was like a miracle drug for my particular cancer it's tamoxifen? uh actually it's herceptin oh okay I did do tamoxifen also but herceptin was when I was 
I was in a trial that was going to see if it worked well for people with my stage of cancer. Mm -hmm. And they stopped the trial early because it was so successful. They had to spread it in regular use before they had intended. Hmm. And now when I was diagnosed, uh, having the protein that the can that that chemo was targeted towards it's uh, having that receptor in the tumor it used to be a really bad thing like mm-hmm. oh my god that's really scary because that's a really aggressive it made the tumor really aggressive yeah and now it's considered a really good thing because they have this particular drug so it's much easier to treat huh. so I was right on that cusp of I was actually literally right on the cusp because they approved the trial they approved the trial the week that I started chemo. So the project managers were running around the office, running around the hospital, having me sign papers as I'm there with scans. They were doing scans for me to prepare me for the trial, hoping the paperwork for the trial would get approved in time because it was down to a a matter of days. And if I had gotten surgery a few days, a week earlier and oh my had God. started chemo a week earlier, I would not have qualified for this trial. Huh. So it's kind of that, it, it's kind of that stuff. Like, cause it was, because that was such a pivotal, I really do think that that drug was, that that drug saved my life. And so I just think there's an alternate reality out there where the timing was two days different and I didn't get in the trial and I probably died. Huh. Um, and so there's been a couple of, there's been a couple of life points like that in my life or my kids' lives or where it sort of is like, yep, that was a, that was a branching point. There you go. That was a branching point. I'm going to sound probably crazy when I say this, but I was doing, I was learning a modality of energy work at one point that was kind of opening up uh, my energy centers and realigning things and, um, wasn't kundalini energy it was something different I'll just I'll say it was divine energy because I don't have a better word for it and during that time it was either in a meditation or a dream I had this vision and vision is a terrible word to describe this all I can say is I met another version of myself that was definitely existing but it wasn't me it was me Hmm. but it wasn't me and there was zero doubt that this version of me yeah. was living in some reality, but it wasn't this one. Wow. And I know I, it sounds bananas. It sounds totally bonkers. No. But this was, it was sort of like a shamanic journey, but I did, had not taken any ayahuasca. Or I had, yeah. I was completely sober. There was no um, high happening. It was just, oh. Wow. Did you have a sense of what that you had experienced Mm -mm. no there wasn't any lesson or there wasn't any communication it was just I saw it I Hmm. was like oh so that's a thing I'm existing someplace else also wow that's interesting it was interesting and I I don't talk about it because I know it makes me sound crazy (laughs) no but there's all sorts well you're talking to me there's all kinds of things in my life that are crazy but that's not the only reason I mean the little I've read about quantum physics is really what I think, why I yeah. think there are yeah. multiple realities existing at the same time. Yep. I think. Because uh, why wouldn't there be? I, yeah. I think that quant and I, I have to admit, well, I was a physics major in college, Woo! Um, but the thinking, the theoretical thinking that got involved when it comes to quantum mechanics mm-hmm. was where I 
lost it. That was where I was like, you know what? I can't do theoretical physics right. Like I, I can't go on in physics. I well, I was awful. I hate lab work too. But the, <laughs> but the quantum physics, just the the way I had to bend my mind around how it. Mm. Not I could do the equations or whatever, but how that what that meant for reality, Mm-mm. I it couldn't make any sense. I couldn't get my head around it. And I wonder sometimes whether kids today, or people who are now working in physics who grew up just after I did whether the the stuff that you're immersed in as you grow up and you're learning whether they're able to conceive of it in ways oh um, yeah maybe because of what they were exposed to and that the stuff that I was taught in physics I'm sure is just very basic is probably Hmm. uh, brushed aside oh that's just like first year high school physics and then the the type of thinking that's involved for quantum physics I think is just very different it's not linear. Was there, do you remember any particular um, theory that was the, the end of the line for you where you're like, nope, I <laughs> I can't get my brain around this? Um, not, not in particular. Um, I do know that as I listen to snippets here and there as an adult just throughout the years since studying it, um, there are certain things like like the idea that you can have two atoms that are synced up and then you separate them and you make a change in like say you have two atoms and they're you've synced them so that they're aligned mm-hmm. and then you take one atom across the earth to a mountain and you change this one and the other one changes yeah i've always viewed that as yep they're going to prove a lot of the energy stuff that people have been doing and feeling and knowing but the logical people are like, oh, no, no, that can't be true because we don't have proof or that can't be. That's impossible. I totally think that quantum mechanics in a short while or whatever evolves from the quantum mechanics is going to explain a lot about what we think. Uh, ESP, you mean like, oh, psychic or psychic stuff, ESP, visions. I feel something in my gut and someone on the other side of the world who I'm close to. Yeah. Something just happened to them. Yep. Like that? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Or even like a, a healer who can sit with somebody and feel, oh, there's a problem with your throat. Like, because mm. I'm feeling this in my body. I think that kind of, of thing also. I think we just don't, the science isn't there yet. But I think a lot of what used to be like, woo woo, that's just way out in outer space is totally going to be considered rational at some point. Once it's proven. Yes. Because all those logical minds. <laughs> um. I was going to say something else about uh, anger. Can I? Yeah. uh, Can you pause one second? I want to get more coffee. Yeah. Hey everybody, it's me. I'm just going to jump in really quick before this last segment because we talk about reactive attachment disorder, but we don't actually define it. And I know that some people might not be aware of what it is because I know I wasn't before it was um, something that Lori made me familiar with. So reactive attachment disorder is something that can happen with adopted children and it's treatable. It There are therapists that specialize in treating this kind of disorder. It is something that can cause a really difficult time forming connections and bonding with people. 
really difficult time managing or recognizing emotions. There can be oppositional behavior and violent outbursts and uh, it is something that can be extremely disruptive to families and very, very confusing and scary for parents that don't know what's happening. So uh, that's it in a nutshell. And please feel free to reach out to me or Lori if you have any more questions. Her business is Red Thread Learning. And also just wanted to note, all of us have attachment issues and have some level of, most of us, I should say, have some level of unhealthy attachments because uh, our parents weren't perfect, basically. And there were, for most of us, at least one or two needs that went unmet. And so the way that we learn to attach to people when we were growing up sometimes plays out in the way that we attach to people as an adult. And that could mean maybe there's more anxiety or maybe there's more um, avoidance or so there's all these different styles of attachment. Reactive attachment disorder is something different and it does need treatment. Lori's website is redthreadlearning.com and on we go with the last segment. Okay, what did you want to talk about? Anger. Yes, anger. We were talking earlier about how in our family we, um, anger was not okay, and you were like taught to repress it, ignore it. You know, it went someplace, but we're not exactly sure where. We don't know where. We don't know where. But one of the things that I think I'm feeling physical ramifications of now is we had had a time um, about seven years ago, six years ago, uh, when uh, one of our daughters was uh, having mental health issues, major depression, major anxiety, some attachment-related stuff, Mm -hmm. and uh, was not not balanced, was not able to self-regulate easily at all. And so... um, uh, we're just it wouldn't be logical it would be something would uh, would set her off and she would just rage mm-hmm. um, and the rages could sometimes get uh, physically violent uh, she'd yell all sorts of stuff it's a if we talk later about attachment disorder it is something that is uh, pretty common for kids who have attachment related problems this sort mm-hmm. of anger and inability to control it is uh, one symptom that can that totally happens. It's not unusual. I found that a number of years ago, I was suddenly in a situation where I had, uh, and it could have been multiple people in the household, uh, but I'll just say one as, a, as if it's only one child all the time, where they would just be raging, just out of control, out of control rage. And as, and what would happen is one child being out of control range it's like a pebble or a boulder being tossed into a lake, mm-hmm. which then makes all these ripples. So mm-hmm. one kid is out of control. Well, that really makes my husband really, really mad. And so he's going to react in an angry way mm. back to the child, which... That sounds really helpful. It's, yeah, anger... <laughs> no, not that you can help it when it's happening. I, right, I, I totally anger, get it. 
Right. No. And anger yeah, so begets th- anger begets anger. Anger begets, begets anger. anger. And uh, and one of the other children might also get angry mm-hmm. and yell back. Or one of the kids, the kids, the other kids would like hide and and mm-hmm. uh, or start crying. Or and what I found was I was in a situation where I had the trigger person who had been triggered. They're out of control, uh, certainly emotionally, maybe physically. Mm-hmm. And whoever else is in the environment, then I'm in charge of protecting, making sure that they're emotionally and physically safe. So that sometimes would be like, you guys got to go to grandma's house. Uh, mm-hmm. You got, I'm going to go on the walk around the block and take trigger child with me. Like just different strategies. Separating. Might, separating, helping other people stay calm, helping other people not escalate the situation, multiple pieces, multiple moving pieces. And in particular, even if I'm alone in the house with this child who's raging, a lot of my, I had to learn how do I maintain my balance and my calm to try to control this, not control, to try to help the child self-regulate. Non-reactive. Non-reactive. Stable. If I'm a, if Mm -hmm. I am a rock, if I am a solid object, and a rock is unfeeling sort of, so that's not the best analogy. But if there's a flame exploding in front of me, mm-hmm. I need to be something that can absorb that energy, but not take it in and help dampen. It's I like, need to I need to have an energy going out that will help dampen the flame so it's under control. That sounds like Aikido. Yeah. Where it's like the martial art where they're coming at you. You don't try to block them. You just use their motion. Yes. To protect. Ch- Protect yourself and like yes. guide them to a different. Exactly. Mm-hmm. In fact, I probably should have studied Akita at this time <laughs> of my life um, because over re- repetitions of this. So with different children and different different combination of who's the, in the environment, but the constant being I have somebody who's out of control in front of me. How do I react in a way that's going to redirect and calm and exactly like like you said with the Akita move it's kind of like I need to kind of get out of the way because mm-hmm. I don't want to be the target I can't just stop them because generally if I'm stopping them I'm trying to be a wall and they're going to crash into the wall yeah. and that's painful for everybody involved um, but how do I do that dance of keeping them calm or it's not keeping them calm it's recognizing that I don't have the power to control them mm-hmm. I just need to find in myself a, a calm and energy that will contribute to their realizing they can calm themselves. Mm. And I did a lot. I had a stance in the hallway because sometimes we would need to physically block one child from access to another child or access to a window if they wanted to throw themselves out a window or where I would stand with my feet apart so and my hands out in front of me. Like, like Tai Chi. Like Tai Chi, actually. <laughs> and it would be the hold on a minute it, actually it, it is absolutely the tai chi stance but with my palms facing outward huh. sort of like boy you're really out of control mm-hmm. how can we calm down and if it was a child who was going to be aggressive towards me I would usually say and I would say this at other times so that they knew in the moment that I meant it if you come close to me like if you come if, they might want to bite me if you come close to me I'm going to take that as you need a hug because usually in the moment that they're mad, they don't want to hug. And so, but that would, then if they came closer and I put my arms around them, I was explaining it's, it's not that I'm attacking you. I'm, 
I'm using your cue because you came to me and that mm -hmm. to me means you need a hug. Really, it didn't, but it would help prevent them from coming towards me to hit me or, uh -huh. or whatever. But I found, I found myself having to pull up that persona that I am calm. Everything will be okay here. Mm. Gee, how about it's like, oh, the house is on fire. How ah. about everybody calmly oh. line up and go out the door? And it's like, it's totally like, it's like, it's, it's real in a way, but it's also not real in a way because I, um, I learned to pretend to be calm and I'm pretty sure I learned to give out an energy that was decently calming, but inside a lot of anger, mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, boy, you say that you really want to hit me. That might not be a good choice. And inside it's like, gosh, darn, I really wish I could hit you back. Like, the internal dialogue, which is valid, totally valid, could never be expressed. To express anger in any way in that moment is not going to contribute to calming the situation down. And there were times where I needed, for everybody's safety, initial, you know, physical, emotional safety, I needed the situation to calm down. Mm. Um, and I think over the years of needing to do that, I really did, as much as I tried not to, I stifled the anger. And it just, I think that I ended up internalizing a lot of that anger, a lot of think stress, think needing to, needing to tighten things up. Yeah. My stress response right now is totally screwed up. Like huh. my, I am, um, is it like post-traumatic stress from all that? It's kind of like trauma and like emergency situations happening. There's, yeah, there's some aspects that are like post that are like PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, there's some aspects that it could be, it's almost like adrenal fatigue that, if I have a day, uh, if I have a day where some, where certainly if something emotional happens, mm -hmm. uh, I'm uh, I'm toast the next day. Oh, I'm, I'm exhausted. Like I took a sleeping pill. Let huh. me stay in bed the next day. So you do you think and it just used all your energy reserves to I, basically play? You were like a an EMT for mm -hmm. emotions you were like a paramedic. You had to adopt a role in the family that generally most I don't. No, most, fam most this is, families don't. This was this. These were out of the box situations for yeah. sure. With not, it, but not for attachment disorder, not for attachment disorder, but for typical families. Nobody's experienced this in a typical <laughs> in a well, typical family. I feel like that's um, good for people to know if, if they're going through attachment disorder stuff that <laughs> if they're feeling inadequate, it's because <laughs> Nothing is adequate. It, no, nothing's adequate. And there's, it's not, I mean, hmm. did you have any kind of training or sense of what to do in those moments because of your background? Yeah. I, I actually chose to get the training because yeah, of, I mean, that's what I thought. I, I had a, I mean, I've always had the opportunity for professional development when I initially, I had worked with an adoption agencies mm -hmm. uh, coordinating their education program. So I've, been to lots of conferences and stuff on that but once we started seeing more intense signs specifically related to attachment issues I went and got intensive professional development about how to how to parent basically it's like tra trauma-informed parenting or trauma-informed caregiving huh. both because it could help me work with other parents about it but really it was because I needed it in my own house it kind of sounds like navigating a war zone a little bit yeah and 
having to repress human emotion, you have you you had to. Yes. And so yes. now you're saying it's affecting and now how I'm, your body. Yeah, how my body reacts. Um, and and I specifically I think it was the anger. Like I think uh, in some in war zones you probably have a different mix of emotions that it could be it could be anger, but anger at the situation or anger at your superiors or anger anger at the enemy for killing people that you love, but it also could be a, a moral question of you know, should I be doing what I'm doing? There's, mm-hmm. there's layers, I think, in war and other types of traumas that are that are very different than this sort of parenting piece. Um, but but yeah, the idea of guilt, the ideas of like in the moment trying to I would see sometimes other kids acting to protect me. Which oh, that made me sounds feel really hard, really bad. Like I shouldn't need them to protect me, and I, they shouldn't. How have I created an environment where mm. they feel the need to do that? Mm-hmm. Or kids protecting the other kids, and then it's like I feel guilty that I've put them in the situation that's exposed them to this sort of violence. Like it's yeah. a, it's, uh, it was not at all clear cut in terms of how to respond as a parent, and mm. a lot of it just couldn't be. It couldn't be expressed in the moment because it was a expressing it would make the situation worse. And so I'm I'm trying to so it's interesting because it's not that I repressed the anger. It's not that I wasn't aware it was happening, but I still think on some energetic level, because I spent so much time like pretend to be calm. Because mm-hmm. I can't say that I was calm in that it's pretend. Yeah. Pretend. Let me pretend to be calm and let me model, hopefully for the other kids how to pretend to be calm mm-hmm. in, a situ- in a really stressful situation. And it just makes me wonder, I don't, there are some parents who can't even pretend to be calm in those situations. Well, I was just thinking our childhood primed you for this because you had been putting your anger aside mm. for your entire childhood, basically. Yeah. So you already kind of knew what that felt like to put yeah. it in a box That's for a true. little while. That so is true. Maybe you already built that muscle up so you could find it when you needed it. Yeah, that's a good point because it did probably pre- it pr- probably prepared me in a way. And I've seen people that can't put anger aside when it's happening. Yeah, adults. I oh mean. yeah, I I have to. Yeah, <laughs> I have to. It's uh, no, it is. It's just uh, it's interesting to think of how you hold on to emotions and where like. Where in my body would this... Where do you feel? Appear? I feel it. When you're talking about it, I feel it in my throat. Yeah. That's where I feel it. But where do you feel it? Yeah, I feel it in the throat, throat, high chest, sort of. Um, I totally have a blocked uh, throat chakra. Like, I, I've got old, old issues of not being heard or not feeling like I've been heard. And probably that could stem from childhood also. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... So I often will feel blockages in my throat chakra and this, I guess a little bit in the pit of my stomach too. It's Mm -hmm. a, but it's a, yeah, it's like I had stuff to say and I couldn't say it. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it can't, it can't come out. So what do you do with that then? Do you work with it in therapy? I haven't recently. I find there's a lot of stuff that I would love to work on in therapy. We've intended to do EMDR for a long time for a couple things, Um, but the new stuff comes up and so I'm always going into therapy and I'm like oh my gosh this happened today you know Mm -hmm. and so it's 
it's hard and my therapist is always good she's like it'll happen when it happens don't worry you know don't beat yourself up because we haven't started EMDR yet have Um, you ever done the the focusing did you read focusing the book mm -mm. it's kind of it so there's two different things there's there's focusing and then there's um saying yes basically I'm sure someone wrote a book about it I don't remember who I just did it in a workshop where you if you feel the tension in a certain part of your body, like I feel it in my throat, focusing would be turning your attention inward and then basically sitting with it, sitting with the sensation or the tightness as you would sit with an old friend mm-hmm. and basically an inquiry mm-hmm. of, hi, do you want to tell me about this? You know, and to see if it shifts. Mm-hmm. Is it the same or is it changing? Is it the same or is it changing? And you, the hardest part is trying not to change it mm-hmm. and to just see what it has to show you and tell you because um, the practice then is saying yes to whatever happens. And mm-hmm. even just thinking the word yes mm-hmm. as you're feeling the tension, yeah. you're like, I know I'm storing anger in my throat. It's prob- making the judgment. It's probably from X, Y, or Z happening take the judgment and like what you think it's about out and yep. you just focus on the sensation and you just keep saying yes. I should try that. It's cool because you can do it anytime. Yeah. You can be like, oh, I feel like tension in my shoulders mm-hmm. and you just do it. And then sometimes even in five or 10 minutes, it's like a, a little mini re- revelation or, but yeah. it, it helps. It sounds like f- from what you were saying, I'm imagining things are stuck and mm-hmm. so it helps get the flow going again yep. just by saying yes and sort of giving permission for whatever was there to be there or whatever's there now to be happening now. And I think so often because even that situation you were describing, you have to maintain that um, protection and you have to maintain that peace even when you're not feeling peace which is kind of a process of saying no to yourself right you're just denying what you actually feel in order to maintain the situation as safe for everyone right so it's sort of reversing that no into a yes Mm -hmm. but I I've also seen and the other thing it made me think of was our Aunt Mary Jo in her interview she was saying that uh, she was an emergency trauma nurse Mm -hmm. and I thought "Hmm, maybe it's genetic the ability to handle high stress situations and maintain that calm yep because she said she didn't even feel stress she it wasn't stressful for her it was on the ball she could handle it knew what to do yep I think if it's other people's kids it would be easier like Mm -hmm. I think I would do much better in a situation where it's other people yeah um it's the somehow it being your kids or your family puts because there's the there's a piece of it that's like how did I create this did I am am I am I the cause of this oh my god they're never gonna grow up the right way like just you have all these and different judgments coming in to occupy that space where you you can't have any triggers you you have to be triggerless which is impossible. We all have triggers. Yeah. And to just be like, I have to occupy this space where I am <laughs> triggerless. That's impossible. But yeah. you did it. Yeah. 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 The it's um I'll have to try the 
the releasing, the focus and releasing thing. Um, they're not releasing, just focus and ask. Yeah, the easiest way is just to notice the, notice the sensation in your body. Because the concept is a feeling, if you're having a feeling that's uncomfortable, all it is is a thought in your head and a sensation in your body. Mm-hmm. And those two things. So you, instead of trying to address the thought, mm-hmm. you address the sensation and you yep. say yes to it. Yeah, because it's all linked. I mm-hmm. a, a challenging piece that I have found uh, as I try to overanalyze, because I always overanalyze things, uh, depression and how how do you manage depression and how mm-hmm. do you not be angry that because I've been the last few years as my stress release stress mechanism has been all off kilter um, that has well and I was anemic for a few years that doesn't help it did not help at all and and then just depression um, I would get really angry and frustrated at being depressed like not only am I depressed but then it's like what how long have I been dealing with this and yeah. why can't I get through it already mm-hmm. and being angry that it would be a part of my life and lots of emotions around the depression mm-hmm. and uh, one uh, mindful approach towards depression is just the acknowledgement that it's here it's the acknowledgement of the dark and the light that mm. we are all a combination for some of us the darkness includes depression and you don't always live there, but when you're in there, it's really hard. And yeah. But being able to acknowledge for yourself, this is just a piece of me, and it's a part of who... It's sort of like the the say yes, sit with it. Mm-hmm. Um, That's really and, tough to do with depression. And though. to sit with it without being angry or without trying oh my to God. change it, yeah. I still... I have moments where I can almost approach that, but I can only do it when I'm not depressed. Like uh-huh. I, I can, mm-hmm. that makes sense. And so, but so the challenge for me is as I start feeling a depression, cause I can usually, f- it, sometimes it hits me all at once, but sometimes it's like, Oh, yep. I can tell we're mm-hmm. taking little stair steps down, uh, to try to figure out a way to do that, to say yes to it, but not change it. Because I do think that the the way to managing it ultimately probably is in in acknowledgement and then hoping that it will shift to a smaller space at least. Yeah, I I have a lot of different thoughts about that. I feel like sometimes depression feels like a train robbery, like it just takes over and yeah. and the really hijacks your thinking. Yep. So mindfulness in the face of that clinical depression is really really tough without meds or without um acupuncture or something to balance out what's happening with chemistry yeah if you can get a handle on the chemistry yeah then the other it becomes easier stuff is more useful because um i do tend to think that there are feelings under the surface of depression that just haven't been expressed Mm -hmm. and things that are supposed to be floating freely kind of just got locked up. Yeah. And um, I know that's not true for everyone, but I guess in my personal experience and people I've talked to and just even what you're saying, your stress response, having to repress or set to the side or not be standing fully in your emotional truth as things are happening by necessity created – a little disconnect that you're still working through years later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's nice that you're helping other people. 
that might need help with getting mm-hmm. through times like that. Yeah, I, I do think uh, people sometimes seem to find their way to me just at odd times. I'll get a call from somebody. Oh, somebody somebody said that you were good to talk to about this. Uh, um, but when I've run groups of people who have kids with challenging behaviors, mm-hmm. it, usually in the realm of post-trauma, um, it's lovely to see their reaction to each other because I've had I remember one mom who was like it's such it's so great somebody else was saying how their child had punched a hole in the wall Mm -hmm. and the other mom a different mom was like oh that makes me feel so good (laughs) she's like because you you don't have play groups where people's kids punch holes in the wall like you don't the each each of them individually was feeling hugely isolated and Mm. hugely like the only bad parent like yeah because the they were surrounded by normally kids in the normal range of behaviors yeah and without specific sometimes a specific diagnosis can help you feel a little better or sometimes Mm -hmm. just being being in a group of people where kids were experiencing the same things and parents were like we don't know how to deal made everybody everybody felt better because they're all like none of us know what we're doing and I'm like well, here are some ideas, but generally, yeah. Um. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. Today, it's, we don't often get the chance to talk about topics like mm-hmm. this. I hope that you'll come back and talk about uh, more about attachment or disorder. We talked about it a little bit, but I hope you'll come back and talk more. Yeah. And about adop- adoption things. and I'd be glad to. Birth stories birth stories there's Mm -hmm. all all yes deep interesting things on all levels 